Well, morning. Can I have my welcome to John and Judy's? It's great to have you both here in the room this morning. And if you're watching at home, uh, whether you're on your own or whether you're having church at home in groups, great to have you with us this morning. And I don't know if you've ever heard the joke or a variant of it. How many married men does it take to change a light bulb? Change? Uh, It's a joke that could be applied to so many different things and so many different professions. I've heard it applied to vicars, to church ministers, to politicians, to all sorts of people. We struggle with change. Some of us love it. Some of us naturally find it difficult. And then when it's change that is a change that we wouldn't want, it becomes even more difficult. It's estimated that technology changed more in the 20th century than in the rest of human history put together. And then it's thought that it will have then changed in the first 25 years of this century more than the rest of human history put together. Change, as the old saying goes, is here to stay. And if anything, this last year and a half has showed us that change sometimes can be so devastating and we don't know what to do with it. Some of us love it, some of us struggle with it. There's a number of different ways you can approach it and I want to just reflect on a couple that I've found helpful before we dive in to this passage in Nehemiah that was read so brilliantly even with all of those names. The first is this, you may have seen this cycle before. It's called the Kubler-Ross change cycle and it's simply, this is when change is kind of forced upon you that you don't want. It starts with a shock and then often we go into sort of denial about that change that's been foisted on us. And then eventually that kind of goes in towards anger, that we kind of react against it. We don't want this. And then eventually go into this real low point where we feel helpless. We don't want it. We don't know what to do. And then out of that, gradually, we then begin to experiment to see what this could mean for me in my life. And then gradually get towards accepting it and moving on. That's one approach to change that we often see in reality. But the other that I found helpful is this. This is when the change is one that you want, and yet we still go through a various cycle on it. It starts with the change, whatever that might be. And then if we want it, we have a kind of uninformed optimism. What that means is we're expecting this change to be the thing that's going to solve all our issues. And so for some right now within Riverside, we've launched on a new journey. We're excited. And I know for some, this is the moment. And may it be so. But there's a sort of uninformed optimism because we have no idea what it's going to look like in three weeks, six months, a year and beyond. There's an uninformed optimism. And then what happens is if that change doesn't meet our expectations, we go into a sort of informed pessimism where we go on a downer because all that we'd hoped of hasn't come to be. And then eventually we get to this unrealistic pessimism. Boy, it was way better when we were back there, way better how it was. And then out of that, we have a risk because you can either then jump at that point and then say, I'm out, or actually push through to an informed optimism where we then begin to move forwards into what the future looks like. Where are you at right now with the change that's going on in your world? Some of it may be very traumatic. Some of it may be very exciting. Where are you at? 
One of the real dangers we face is change fatigue, that in a world of so much change, we become exhausted and we just want to just be in a moment of stillness with everything staying the same. Well, today, for a few minutes, I want to just unpack some of those verses that were read to us from the story of Nehemiah about handling change well wherever we are at. God's people at this stage in Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8 have endured massive change. They've been taken from their homeland into another land. And then they've now been given permission to go back to the city of Jerusalem. It's been rebuilt. And finally, they've rebuilt the wall so that then they're safe. They're united together in one city, safe. Huge change. And we see in these chapters their priorities as people because the physical has been dealt with. They've built with, if you like, the structures, the wall has been built. But we see some foundations laid for the people which are important for all of us as individuals and for us as a church community in a time of change. And the same is true for us. We met on Monday night for the first time as a building group, looking at trying to get a different venue. It's great to meet together. Do pray for that team. It really is a cracking team. We are referring to them as the A team. Uh, Led, chaired by Stephen Ashton, a huge, good number of people on that team. It's going to be a great thing. Pray for them. But of course, the building is not the dream. We as people need to lay some foundations and have these foundations that we'll see throughout these verses to enable God to do what he wants in us and through us. And chapter 8, verse 1 begins with these words. Let me read it to you. They've built the wall, and then all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the law had commanded for Israel. So they've done the task, they've built the wall, and now they gather together and say, Ezra, would you read to us from the book of the law of Moses? They go back to the Bible. And that's the first crucial thing for us as people. In a time of massive change, take hold of the scriptures, of the word of God, of the Bible. Their default in a time of change is to go back to what God has said. So often, if you're anything like me, we take that for granted. We've got the Bible in our own language. It's easy to kind of grab hold of, and so therefore sometimes we find it so difficult to do so. I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. Cracking quote. It's the great responsibility and privilege of Christians today to place this proven and essential source document on spirituality in the hands of those who are bewilderingly searching through a welter of spiritualities for something authentic, something true. Take hold of the Bible. But don't just take my word for it. You know, I'm a pastor. I would say that. (laughs) I read a fascinating article this week written by an atheist historian, probably the most well-known historian in the world today, a guy called Niall Ferguson from Stanford University, himself an atheist. He said this, listen to these astonishing words. I was brought up an atheist. I didn't become one. I regard atheism as the religious faith I happen to be brought up in. It is, of course, as much a faith as Christianity or Islam. Indeed, atheism, particularly in its militant form, is really a very dangerous metaphysical framework for a society. 
He said, I know I can't achieve religious faith, but I do think we should go to church. We don't have, I don't think, an evolved ethical system. There's just too much evidence that in the raw, when the constraints of civilization fall away, we behave in the most savage way to one another. I'm a big believer that with the inherited wisdom of a two millennia old religion, we've got a pretty good framework to work with. Isn't that astonishing? They met and as they gathered, they knew a firm foundation needed to be the scriptures, the Bible. But do you notice something? Uh, Look again at chapter 8, verse 1. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of law of Moses, which the law had commanded for Israel. Part of the reason they get the Bible right front and center as a a community is because it shows them what God has done in the past. And in a time of change, they need to remember that. Because as they look at the book of the law of Moses, they've got a reminder of God's faithfulness and God's provision in the past, which is the second thing that is a key foundation, to take hold, yes, of the Bible and to take hold of the past. Because they'd have seen the progress that was made through their history. The wall that has now been built was once in ruins and now they're able to remember what God has done in them in a community. And they'd have remembered some words from Psalm 48. Let me read it to you. Where they talk about Zion, which is Jerusalem. Walk about Zion, Zion, not Zion. Walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, view her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation. For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. Do you see? In a time of massive change, They remember that God is our God and therefore they need to tell the next generation to tell the next generation to tell the next generation. So they look back to what God has done as a reminder as they step into the future. They tell the stories of God's faithfulness. Now, I don't know if you watched the game last night. Yeah, a few hands in the room, a few whoops. I don't know if you've seen this picture doing the rounds on social media. I love this photoshopped, doctored picture. It's a picture of Gareth Southgate hugging Gareth Southgate. And of course, the player in the pitch, Gareth Southgate, is a photo from Euro 96, 25 years ago, when England got to the semi-finals of the European Championships, playing at Wembley, and a young player called Gareth Southgate took the penalty and missed, and therefore England crashed out of the European Championships. And then also stood by that young Gareth Southgate is, of course, the Gareth Southgate of today, complete with his waistcoat, putting his arm round him as if to speak to that young Gareth Southgate to say one day, one day. So important, isn't it? That it's when we look back, we therefore got the wisdom to be able to speak to other generations to say, God's with us. He's with us. I met uh, with Nick and Lois Cuthbert the other day, uh, recording a video that we're going to show in a couple of weeks. Um, And it was just a joy to hear their stories of those very early days of Riverside. 
in amongst huge change then, and of course change over the years, what was so wonderful was to hear of how God was faithful. That in the ups, in the downs, in the heartbreak, and in the real joy, God provides, God is faithful. It's only as we look back are we able to then embrace what's going on. So change, take hold of the Bible, take hold of the past. But there's something else. Did you notice in these words in in Nehemiah? They don't just look at the Bible on their own. They take hold of each other. They met together. Uh, Listen to verse 2 and 3 of Nehemiah chapter 8. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now, At the moment, here at Riverside House, we've got a gathering of people. And at the moment, in homes all across Birmingham, there are people gathering in groups. And we hope in a few weeks' time, when the government restrictions may be relieved, then more people can gather here in a variety of gatherings on Sundays, as well as being able to meet in homes to have church at home. Why are we doing that? Why is it so important that Christians gather together? Why did Nehemiah record so many people gather together? Simply because we need each other. We are so important for each other. You are really important for other people. It's been great to hear of people currently on Alpha who, because they're exploring the questions of life with other people, it's given them a safe space to be really honest and then walk together with the big questions of life. We need each other. And Jesus reminds us that the most attractive thing about the church is the way we love each other. When we hold each other in the brokenness and the grief, when we celebrate in the joys and the triumphs, In time of change, we get to walk together, carrying each other. And that's been so obvious during lockdown, hasn't it? Uh, I was chatting to someone a little while ago, Mike Waldron, uh, one of our trustees here, who was just telling me about his world as a surgeon uh, and how they'd worked out as a team that once a week, everyone would have a real low day. And it just kind of came around clockwork. Today's my day, you know. And then on that day, somebody else might be on a bit of an up. And so therefore, they can carry each other. And hasn't that been the case during lockdown? We've needed each other because it's been pretty difficult and unbearable for many. Friends, we need to keep gathering together. We need each other to encourage each other. And I, uh, two weeks ago today received a beautiful email from Brian and Val Philp. And it said this. I thought I'd read it to you just as an encouragement, as it was an encouragement to us as leaders, as a perfect example of what we're able to do to each other. And as we mourn Brian, listen to these words. This is the email. Just to let you know that we absolutely support you in all you're doing and all that you are, although we don't know at the moment how that's going to develop for us. Although we aren't quite in our 80s, we don't think that going up mountains will be our role. We thank God for all the leadership team and are excited about what's going to happen in the next few years. May God bless you and use you in all that you do. That is encouragement. 
And we have the opportunity to encourage each other when we gather together here, in groups, wherever it may be. And right now, we have an opportunity to encourage and pray for and love Val and Sarah and Tom and family and Graham and Caroline and the Wilkes family in times of real trial. That's church. We need each other. So God's people gathered together, hearing from the scriptures, meeting together, looking back, and then they began to praise and celebrate. Look at verse 6. The natural result was this. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Why are they so happy? What's caused this worship as they gather together and explore the Bible? Well, the rest of chapter 8 details their festival, their celebration. And and they they do some quite odd things. They, They build little shelters for themselves as well as feasting. And listen to verse 17 of of chapter 8. The whole company that had returned from exile built temporary shelters and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated like this, and their joy was very great. What's going on here? Well, I think it's this, the fourth thing. For us in a time of change is to take hold of God's future. So yes, we take hold of the Bible. Yes, we take hold of the past, and we take hold of each other, and then we take hold of God's future. Because the reason they're celebrating like this is because as they look back to what God has done in them as a people, they're able to look forward to a future with God, which is incredible. So Leviticus chapter 23 gives a bit of context. Let me read it to you, uh, where they describe what's going on. Live in temporary shelters for seven days, so your descendants will know that I and the Israelites live in temporary shelters when I brought them out of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Do you see? The reason they celebrate like this is they remember the rescue that God had done, where he'd taken them out of slavery. And so because of that, they're able to look forwards to the future in their new city, taking hold of what God's got in store because they know that God is with them. And of course, for us today as followers of Jesus, we don't just look back to that time where uh, people were rescued from slavery in Egypt. We look back to God's rescue when Jesus died on a cross. God himself stepped in to rescue us. And not only did that, not only die for us in our place, he beat death so that even in the middle of utter grief, we celebrate because death is not the end for those who are cling on to Jesus. And then beyond that, it's not just that, that actually then he sends us his spirit to then live for him, empowered by him to step into God's future as empowered people holding out this message of life. So friends... As we look back to what Jesus has done, we're able to take hold of the future with confidence. Because even though we don't know the journey that will go on, we know that God is our God, who has been with us, will be with us, and is with us right now. That enables us to navigate change, whether good or bad. Because we know and we trust that God is with us and we're part of his story. And so let's grab hold 
of that future with confidence.